Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. This morning we're going to be finishing our temporary series on the Psalms. So we are at Psalm 69. So you can go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a longer psalm, um, so we won't be dealing with every single phrase in it. Um, But one thing I want you to hear before we read it is that this psalm has some parts in it that might rub you the wrong way. Um, They might strike you as, oh, that seems different than uh, the God I thought I worshipped. But we're going to talk about those things. So that's the good news this morning. So Psalm 69. Let's read. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor and your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love and your great mercy. Turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me, deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. 
I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this psalm. Um, thank you for what it teaches us about you and what it teaches us about how we are to come to you and react to you and how to uh, engage with you. I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, you would reveal to us what you want from us from the psalm uh, this morning, and may you reveal even more so what you have done for us. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, one of the blessings, I think it's a blessing that I have in uh, my house is a DVD case full of family videos from my childhood. So you can actually come to my house, um, and if I like you, I will let you see uh, some videos of my childhood and what I was like as a four-year-old or a six-year-old or an eight-year-old. And there's all these greatest hits moments that come from these videos because my family would watch them um, at Christmas time every year. And one of the uh, greatest hits moments in my family videos isn't actually of me, but it's of my brother, Daniel. He's a few years younger than me. And so the year is probably 1993, 1994. Um, my brother is four or five years old, and he had been telling my parents and my grandparents all Christmas that he wanted this amazing fire truck. Now, this fire truck was modern technology in 1993. You could press a button and then give it voice commands, and the truck would do different things. So you press the button, and you tell the truck to move, and it moved. You tell it to, like, do its sirens, and it would do its sirens. And this is before Siri and all that stuff. So this is, like, modern technology. My brother was dying to have the voice command fire truck. So... My grandmother, um, mischievous as she is, decided that she would play a prank on my brother. So Christmas morning came, and we were at my grandmother's house, and she hands him a very tiny little box. She gives it to him, and my brother's been trained to be, you know, polite and kind, and he opens up the little, the little tiny Micro Machines fire truck that my grandmother had gotten for him and everyone was prepared for the joke so my mom my grandma you can hear him on the video he's like Daniel don't you love the little fire truck you said you wanted a fire truck right we got you a fire truck and he's like thank you it's I love it you know he's like trying to be so sweet and so thankful but clearly he is not thankful he is entirely disappointed by what he has gotten for Christmas. Obviously my grandparents also got him the real one and that's when they pull out the real one and they give him the real one but that moment where he is trying to express gratefulness, trying to fake being thankful when it's so clear that he is not at all thankful is the, uh, the emotion I want us to think about this morning because I think that when we go to God sometimes, when we come before him, we feel like there is this pressure for us to put on a face of thankfulness, to put on a face of joy, even though our lives aren't necessarily filled with joy, our hearts aren't necessarily 
filled with joy. We have this pressure that we put on ourselves to create an image with which we go before God that isn't actually what we truly feel, what we are truly dealing with. This is particularly true when we are suffering or when we are struggling, when our hearts do not feel particularly thankful or joyful. How do we interact with God in the midst of suffering? That's my question this morning. How do we interact with God when we are suffering or when we are struggling? Does God want us to just put on a face and pretend to be happy? The psalmist here is suffering. He feels beat down. He's persecuted. He's scorned. He's shamed by those around him. And as we listen to the psalmist's response here and how he engages with God, I think we learn something. We learn a bit about how God wants us to interact with him. Because when we look at the psalms, the psalms aren't just examples of how people have interacted with God. They are a guidebook, an example for us to learn how does God himself want us to interact with him? How does God want us to come to him? And as we look at this psalm this morning, I want us to see that God wants us to come to him with two things, with humility, but also with honesty. He wants us to come to him with humility, but he also wants to come to us to come to him with honesty. So the first thing we see in this passage is that God wants us to come to him in humility. The first way we see humility in this passage is through the psalmist's dependence on God. I was at home a few weeks ago. I don't know where my wife was, and I'm sitting upstairs uh, watching TV or something, and my boys are supposed to be downstairs going to bed because that's what I want them to do. And so they're supposed to be sleeping, and then I get this cry that I hear. And I hear, Daddy! Daddy, help! Daddy! I'm like, what happened? It's not one of those cries where something's really wrong. You just know that, like... You know, they're, they're, they're distressed, but they should just be a bang and sleep. So they shouldn't have any problems anyway. So I run downstairs, and uh, I look on my, my son Silas's bed, expecting to see him there calling me for help, and I don't see him anywhere. But I still hear his voice yelling, Daddy, help, Daddy. And as I look around trying to find him, he's not on the top bunk. He's not on the bottom bunk where his brother is. But then I see these legs hanging out from behind the bed. He had tried to, he was playing, and he had tried to uh, squeeze down the crack in between his bed and his brother's bed against the wall. And in doing so, the wall and the side of the bed had caught him in his midriff, and so he was literally stuck there. He couldn't go any farther down, and he couldn't pull himself up, so he was completely helpless in this situation, yelling, Daddy, as his legs dangled down below. Why did my son call out to me? My son called out to me, one, because he was helpless. He knew he could not fix his own situation. And two, he knew that his brother wasn't going to be able to help him. No one else was in the house. He knew that I was his only hope. I was the only one who could help him. The psalmist here is in distress And what does he do? He calls out to the Lord. Look at verses 1 through 3. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. 
When the psalmist suffers, where does he go? Where does his, do his eyes go? His eyes go to look for the Lord. When is he going to come? When is he going to provide rescue? Because the psalmist knows, like Silas, that he is completely helpless without the Lord. And he also knows that the Lord is his only true help. God is our ultimate help in times of trouble. He is our ultimate help. He is the one who can actually provide resolution to our suffering. He is the one who can provide comfort. He is the one who can provide an end to it. He is the only one who can truly end it. But for us, it's sometimes hard to ask for help sometimes. There's a part of us that really wants to either accomplish things on our own, wants to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just, we're going to fix this problem on our own. Or we look to other things to fix our problem that are not God and that cannot ultimately fix our problems. When we go to ourselves, when we look to ourselves to fix our problems, it's a a symptom of pride. And I think sometimes that's self-inflicted pride. Sometimes it's like, you know, I feel like oh, I've got to accomplish things for myself to make myself feel good about myself. But I think there's sometimes almost a spiritual element to this independent streak that we have. Like the, the church sometimes has been a place where people are made to feel like, well, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. You guys have heard that, that quote. That's not in the Bible for good reason because God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who look to him for help. God actually wants to challenge the independent streak in our hearts that says, I can do it. I can fix my problems. It's on me. And call us to turn from that to him in dependence, in humble dependence, looking for him to be the solution to our problem. God longs for us to come to him and he invites us to come to him when we are suffering and to ask him for help. It's part of the way he's shaping our hearts to be humble and dependent. So humility is dependence, but humility is also an undeserving attitude, an undeserving yet expectant attitude. Is there anything more unappealing than a deserving attitude? I, uh, I sometimes uh, find joy reading Reddit, um, particularly feeds where uh, people get their uh, instant justice. There's a feed called Instant Karma. I'm not sure if you guys know what Reddit is, but there's a feed on, on Reddit called Instant Karma. And basically it's these stories or videos of people doing something really unjust and then immediately kind of like experiencing the consequences of their actions. There's something kind of satisfying about reading them. But there's this one that I was reading this week about this man who comes into a fast food restaurant with an incredibly deserving attitude. He believes that he deserves the fast attention everybody to focus on him for him to get his order first so he comes up and he angrily orders his food and he's like demanding it to come fast and as soon as he pays his order shows up on the counter which clearly isn't his there's no way it could have been done right uh that quickly but he grabs it and he starts walking out the door and he opens it up and says you got my food wrong and he goes back to the counter and he yells at the people for getting his food order wrong and and instead of uh responding and just telling the man like, hey, that's not your food. You grabbed the wrong one. You're being rude. The employee of the restaurant says, oh, 
I'm sorry, sir, that, you're right, that isn't your food. And so he goes to the, the bag, grabs all the food that this guy ordered, puts it in the bag, and then hands that to the customer who that food really belonged to originally, and just says, sorry, man, this isn't for you. Um, deserving attitudes are so disgusting, right? We hate it. We hate it when we're, we're, we're like in a relationship with someone and they just have like a, a pompous, deserving, pretentious attitude. It's so unappealing. But so often, I think in a relationship with the Lord, we come to him with a deserving attitude. What happens when things don't go your way? When you don't get what you think you want? When you don't, um, when life gives you bad news? Get angry or frustrated or you start coping by running to substances or whatever it is you run to. We, are so, we get so frustrated, I think. I think a lot of it is in our hearts because our hearts have this attitude that believes that we deserve for God to give us good things. We deserve to get what we want. We have earned these things. Why don't we have them? The psalmist here knows, though, that he is not deserving. Look at verse 5. It says, You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. The psalmist knows that he's a sinner. The psalmist knows that God knows his sin. He knows that he's not deserving. But even though he knows he's not deserving, he's still expectant of God to do something for him. Sometimes we think like if you, to be really engaged with God, to be, have an undeserving, humble attitude, you have to grovel, right? You have to just, you know, well, oh, I don't know if you're going to do this, God, but uh, this is, I'm kind of a bad person, I know, but maybe you could do this thing. And we kind of like grovel before his throne. Well, this, the psalmist isn't doing that. The psalmist is saying, Lord, I am expecting you to do something. But he's coming to him humbly, which means his expectation comes from a different place. While we might sometimes expect God to do something because we deserve it, the psalmist is saying, I don't expect you, God, to do these things for me, to give me relief from suffering because I am deserving. I'm doing it because I know who you are. I'm expecting not based on my merit, but I'm expecting based on who I know you to be. And we do know who God is. The psalmist knows who God is. Look at this in verse 16. He says, answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love and your great mercy, turn to me. He's saying, Lord, I know I'm not deserving, but I also know that you are a good and merciful God. You are a gracious God. What is grace in the Bible? Grace is unmerited favor. God is a God who loves to give his favor, loves to give his gifts to people who have not earned them, who do not deserve them. That is the kind of God he is. And because of this, the psalmist can look to God with humility, but also an expectation of what God is going to do because he knows what kind of God he serves. Paul himself in Romans gives us the rest of the story. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The God who has given us his very son, the God who has given up 
Jesus, we can expect good things from this God. This does not mean that God gives us what we want all the time. Sometimes he does. It does not mean that God gives us what we want all the time. But what it does mean is that he is ultimately going to give us what is good and right and best for us. It means one day in the future we have a day that is promised when God will make all things new, when God will restore the world to the way it's supposed to be, when he will remove suffering and pain and sin and crying and death. There is a day coming when he will do that in the future, but also even in these moments, God is promising because of his goodness that even in our suffering, he's going to use it for our benefit, to call us more deeply into a knowledge of his love, into a trust of him, into a dependence of him, into um, a comfort and a peace that comes from knowing him. The Lord longs to use our suffering for those things. So when we come to him, we bring ourselves to him in humility, a humility that isn't, um, that isn't deserving to a humility that is dependent on him. He loves to take that opportunity to confront our hearts and to shape them, to shape them more and more into his image and to reveal to us that he is good. God wants us to come to him with humility, but God also wants us to come to him in brutal honesty. Do you guys know the expression, tell me how you really feel? It's a sarcastic expression that's often used when someone goes on a long rant. So let's say you have a friend and that friend has decided that they're going to go on a 10-minute rant about why they hate pineapple on their pizza. It is the worst thing. It's terrible. Anyone who eats it is terrible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they go on and on and on about why it's so terrible. And then afterward, you just look at it and say, why don't you tell me how you really feel? Right? That expression that, that kind of like, says, hey, you clearly feel really, really strongly about this and you've made it completely evident and you're calling attention to that. That's what's kind of, it's kind of what I feel as I read this psalm because the psalmist here is, is pretty brutally honest about how he feels. Look here in verses 19 to 29. I'll read a, a few of them. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And jump down to verse 27. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Come on, David, tell me how you really feel about these enemies of yours. One thing that the psalmist gives us here. He gives us an invitation to bring the full weight of our emotions, the full depth of our feelings before the throne of God. God is not afraid of your fear or your anxiety. He's not afraid of your anger or your depression. He longs for you to bring it all to him. He wants you to bring you, yourself, the fullness of your feelings before him. When we go, when we are suffering, when we are struggling, when we are not feeling joyful, when we're not feeling thankful, we can go to the Lord and literally say to him, I'm suffering. I'm angry. I don't like where my life is right now. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling anxious. This is unjust. 
Why are you allowing this? How long, O Lord? And we can say all of these things to him. We can bring to him the depth of our emotion. And when we do this, what we're doing is we're giving God the opportunity, once again, to shape who we really are. When we bring the fullness of ourselves to him, it gives him the opportunity to shape the fullness of who we are. To call us more into his image. But what do we do with some of the things that David writes here? Particularly this, what do we do with this? Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. In the Bible, this is called an imprecation, a prayer of curse, a prayer of judgment, a prayer of condemnation that David is calling down on his enemies. And the question we have is if this is supposed to teach us how to interact with God, does that mean that we should be praying curses and condemnation on our human enemies? The short answer is no. I'll tell you why. On one hand, we can really affirm a lot of, we can affirm what David's doing here because David has a passionate desire for justice to be done for evil to be called what it truly is and to then be removed from the world. For evil to be blotted out from the earth so that righteousness will reign. David here is longing for justice. And we can value this. We also got to understand who David is and what his role was in this part of the biblical story. David is the king of Israel. He is a representative of, of God's people. He is the one who is entitled with displaying God's kingship over the nation of Israel. It's also in a time when the nation of Israel is actually a literal nation, a physical nation that is representative of God's people. Those are things that are a little different than how we exist today. And because of that, David is concerned that the victory, the seeming victory of his enemies over him will push people away from God. That's what he says in verse 6. He says, Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. One of the things that David is worried about is that as his people see him suffering the scorn and the shame of all those around him, that they will think that God is not powerful that God cannot stand up for himself, that God cannot, is not truly as good as he says he is. David is worried about that. So what he is doing is he is saying, Lord, make it clear to my people who you are. Make it clear that this is wrong. Bring your wrath, bring your justice here to this situation so that my people will praise you and will see you to be the God that I know you to be. But in that time, because the nation of Israel was a physical nation, the nation, the enemies of God's people were physical enemies. That is different than how it is today. We, unlike David, have the full story. 
We have the full story, the story that was led all the way from the beginning of creation, all the way to the Gospels. We see Jesus as the center of the story, and Jesus himself reveals to us the fulfillment, the full meaning of this psalm, the way that God was actually going to bring imprecation on his enemies, the way that God was going to deal with suffering himself, because in Jesus we see a Savior who suffers the way the psalmist suffers. In fact, Jesus suffers physically some of the things that David here just uses as imagery. Let me explain to you what I mean. Look at verse 11. It says, when I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. David is talking about he puts on uh, lowly garments to, to in humility before God and people are instead making a sport of him or joking with him. The God of the universe came as a man and removed his clothes to go to the cross. And his clothes were literally made sport of at the foot of the cross by the soldiers gambling for his cloak. Again, in verse 19, it says that David's saying, I'm scorned, I'm disgraced, I'm shamed. Jesus was viscerally scorned, disgraced, and shamed on the road to Calvary and as he hung on that cross. And then maybe the clearest allusion is in verse 21. It says that they gave me vinegar for my thirst. As we know, as Jesus was on the cross, he cried out in thirst. And someone lifted up to him, not water, but a sponge filled with vinegar. In Jesus, we have the one who's truly suffered these things. We don't have a God who is unequated with suffering. We have one who has suffered tremendously. And as he hung there on that cross, instead of praying imprecations on his human, <coughs> his human enemies, what does he pray? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And even in this amazing moment of mercy, even this amazing moment of God praying blessings on his human enemies, he's also dealing incredible justice to the true enemy. In the same moment that he is displaying mercy to his, the, his human enemies, he is destroying sin and death on the cross. He is laying the ultimate death blow to them. Because on, on the cross, he takes on our sin and our shame, the things that made us enemies to God, so that we can be reconciled once again to God. On the cross, he is dealing the ultimate death blow to sin and shame to, and to the devil to bring them shame. To call what is good, good, and to call what is evil, evil, and to give and to take away its power from this world. He's doing it so that one day this world can be reconciled to himself fully and can fully experience life the way he created it to be. So instead of blotting us out from the book of life for our sin and rebellion against God, he blots sin out of this world. He is ending sin's reign over this world. And so we should go to him we go to this God with complete honesty about our struggles because he is not only a God who wants us, wants to hear how we really are, but he is a God who can empathize with us, who understands what we are going through, and he is also a God who provides the ultimate solution to our sin and our suffering and our shame and to death. 
And it is because of that that this psalm is able to end with praise. Look at this, verse 30. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. Certainly this psalm does not start with praise, but it does end with it. It does not start with thanksgiving or joy, but it does end with it. That's because when we bring ourselves humbly, but honestly before God, God confronts us. God meets us there. And it doesn't mean he takes away the suffering. It doesn't even mean that he diminishes suffering. In fact, God validates our suffering and says, yes, this is bad. This is not good. I have compassion on you. I have empathy for you. But it does, God does reveal to us the bigger picture, the bigger story. He shows us that, yes, you are suffering now, but suffering is never the end of the story. There is a day coming when I will make all things new. And even now, in the midst of your suffering, you have a suffering Savior. You have a suffering Savior who loves you and cares about you, who has reconciled you to God. He is a God also that gives you comfort and peace in the midst of suffering, even before he brings an end to it. This is good news. This is our encouragement to us this morning. It's when we are suffering. Let's go to the Lord. Let's run to him. Bring our suffering to him with humility, but with brutal honesty. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you for the realism of your word, the word, your word that doesn't shy away from uh, the real way we feel, doesn't cause us to be fake versions of ourselves. It causes us to be the real version of ourselves so that you can mold us into your image, the image that we were really created to be. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would um, remind us in the midst of suffering that you're there. Call us to you. And may when we come to you, may we be encountered with your grace and your love um, and new life. Call us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.